Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Coffee and Circuses. This week, Matthias Vivier and Christopher Burden Strevens, my colleagues here at Kent, return to the show to grill me as the guest. As it's the 50th episode, we thought we'd turn the tables uh, and throw in a bottle of Prosecco as well. And they're going to be discussing with me why I got into archaeology, what I've learned from the podcast, and various other things about me that aren't probably that interesting. But whatever, it's episode 50, and I've been doing this for 50 weeks, so you're just going to have to live with it. But thanks for joining me, as always. Well, I think, first and foremost, before we begin actually talking about any of the background to why it is you're doing what you're doing, I think we should raise a toast and chink our glasses to your 50th episode oh, of Coffee you. and Circuses Absolutely. with this 7.99 co-op <laughs> that you've procured. Only the Prosecco best. and Circuses. Prosecco and Circuses. Jubilee <laughs> edition. <laughs> golden Jubilee. Is it a Golden Jubilee in 50 years? It's a Diamond Jubilee, diamond jubilee. For, for Coffee and Circuses. My Diamond episode. So we've, uh, for the benefit of the listener, I suppose, we've turned the tables this time and we've put you in the, in the interrogation chair. We've mm-hmm. put you on the rack to be interrogated and scrutinised <laughs> now that you've spent the last, well, how long is it exactly, interviewing oh all these my, people? Yeah, I suppose, well, it's been about a year. I've been waiting for, on Facebook, to get some sort of notification where, you know, it's got Facebook memories. Mm-hmm. Around this time, I should have got some sort of memory come up about the very first post I would have thought it must it must be around this time it's been about a year because I'm on about 50 years well as you say this this will be episode 50 so give or take missing a few weeks I should have actually gone past a year certainly yeah but it's been a long time but I think Facebook is really rather like rather like your mother when they first meet the person that you're dating you know the photo album that they show you isn't actually uh, the memories that you want to see. Yeah. Like Facebook memories from a year ago is always the stuff that, that you really don't want for public consumption at all and you're kind of ashamed of. Yeah. Not this, of course. It's, so it's, it's well, no, it's very cringy. My Facebook memories of 10 years ago when I was, uh, well, yeah, or even just over that now and going back to being an undergraduate and you think, at the time, you had no idea what Facebook was. It was just yeah, this exactly. thing that exploded. And then it was like, oh, all right, post every single day. David is doing this. David is doing that. Oh, and no. And you're like, oh, I know. What if Facebook statuses used to be? We, I used to do them as I used to do in the third person. I did that for like two years. <laughs> I was just going to ask, were you like Caesar reporting on yourself in the third Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Caesar hastened. David hastened. Um, <laughs> it's not quite the conquest of Gaul. We're just going out and getting very drunk and trying to remember the next. <laughs> is it warmer that Caesar landed at in Kent? Um, we don't actually know. No, there's various places that, yeah. that claim it. It's much like the Rubicon, I think, in yeah. terms of mm. way across the Rubicon, places claiming it. Because mm-hmm. they have a plaque there. Is that why? Well, in Warmer, there's a plaque, I, and I know this because actually I have not been to Warmer, um, fortunately. But um, Charlotte Higgins, in her book yes. Under Another Sky, oh, journeys through Roman Britain. She kind of opens her a chapter one with talking about going through in her old VW camper mm. and ending up at Warmer and meeting these residents, including a rather crazy old man who told her that he's descended from like Charles III and all the rest. Mm. But he, in, a, in the midst of all that, she recounts it so vividly that then she kind of actually 
says, oh, and he showed me the, the plaque uh, to the landings of Julius Caesar. And he, ta- he told me all about who Julius Caesar was and uh, all about the birth of Rome, Britain. Uh, and I pretended uh, not to already be familiar with the subject because that was the polite thing to do. So, yeah, I think it is warmer, or at least that's what the people of Warmer think. Have you, did, did you like the book? Yeah, I did like the book. Um, but I think, David, we're getting this the wrong way around. I think we're supposed to be... Yeah, I know, right, it's interesting. You, know, you, you can't just, break just, out of it, you see? <laughs> After 50 episodes, you've been trained yes. to ask the questions. So, it's your turn to answer some questions, <laughs> I think. Like the archaeological Stasi or something, yeah. You're going to shine a torch in your face and put the Prosecco down and answer the question. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you got for me? <laughs> I mean, we can begin with a question. God, this sounds like an interview. About the podcast, like, how did you get started on this? Like, what, what, what gave you the idea of doing this? Do you think you, um, you achieved what you wanted to, to do with these podcasts? Wow, that's that's a loaded question to begin with. Uh, or many questions. It's to begin not with. meant to be a loaded question. <laughs> we just want to we want to hear your thoughts. Um, well, actually, it was interesting that you that's brought a up. That's a royal we. Sorry, David. <laughs> it was interesting that you brought up under another sky because originally, I thought for a long time about the idea of doing a podcast, which spoke to mm. where I spoke to people who worked on the ancient world, because there seems to be an awful lot of podcasts now in general but quite a number of them that look at aspects of the ancient world but it occurred to me that nobody really went around speaking to people that actually worked on it in terms of why do you do this what what, what's the reasoning behind it what what led you to study this why is it interesting and I thought those stories in themselves were quite interesting and I thought originally the, the idea was going to be to actually talk to mainly people about Roman Britain and also link it into the idea of what does Roman Britain mean mm. in the 21st century. Partly because of what looks like Under Another Sky, because I thought the interesting thing there was she went around speaking to various archaeologists uh, and I thought gave a very interesting caricature, like one or two sentence image of them as she did so. But also as well, the background on the people that had really led the way in research on Roman Britain, talking about people like Walter Wheeler, Archie Collingwood, etc. I mean, those are fascinating people in their own right, but I thought it'd be interesting to do a more up-to-date version in terms of asking the people now what's going on, and also trying to talk to a variety of people, people that, not just academics and, and archaeologists, but also people that work in museums, people that have a uh, more of a, I don't want to say casually interested in it, but people that come at it from different angles. And I thought it would be interesting to get that range of views as to why people get attracted to the subject. Mm-hmm. And uh, But then I thought the problem is with Roman Britain is that might be a bit too niche. I don't know if it would be too niche, but I, at the time I was more worried that if I wanted to do it on a regular basis, it might be harder to find the people. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have to do something. That would be a good thing to come back to and do a shorter, maybe 10-part episode series on talking to people about it. But uh, I don't know, 10 parts. I mean, you were probably thinking that this would be 10 parts initially and then it kind of... Uh, kind of ballooned and it's turned into this. Into yeah, this. I always no. I always thought that it would run for quite a long time. Okay. That was the, the the point was to try and I didn't have a a goal in mind. I thought it would just run and I'd try and let it run organically, mm-hmm. and I would see where it went. And yeah, and it, getting to about fifty episodes, I think it's it's one of those things though where I am not putting a lid on 
interviewed people in the way I have been doing. Because there are people that have agreed to do it, and but they just can't do it now. So we'll come back to it hopefully next year and maybe do a run of episodes with, with people. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, just for my own sanity to some degree, <laughs> I feel like there's a point where everything has its... Uh, everything has its shelf life. And I kind of feel at the moment that even just for me personally, it's kind of got to a point where I like I just need to take a break from this because of, obviously when you have to sort out people to interview, when you have to sit down and do the we do the interview itself, uh, and then you have to do the editing process, and then you put it out there. Um, there's, there's X number of hours in the week that ends up taking up, mm-hmm. and there are times where that's fine, and there's other times where you're like, oh my god, I don't have enough time in this week to do everything, and I don't know how I'm going to get this done. So. Uh, yeah, that's why I need a, a break from it. But that's not to say it's over and done with. But, uh, but no, it's been an interesting run. There's been a lot of people I've spoken to. And it's kind um, of evolved, yeah. apparently, then, from being like this kind of Roman Britain idea to being actually something much bigger, where you're talking to lots of different types of people. Yeah, I mean, it's still focused mainly on the Roman world, although we do branch out in slightly different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I thought having a broader scope made it interesting, or it made it more accessible. Um, but it's also enabled me to talk to a wider variety of people than I would have done which I think has been beneficial um, in a number of ways for for anybody listening but also for me in terms of I end up speaking to people that maybe I wouldn't have necessarily spoken to otherwise mm-hmm. because we maybe operate in different spheres that don't necessarily cross over so directly. Well, also I suppose it's a really good way also to hear in effect in a reasonably detailed way what it is that people are doing as well because like I know you as like the Roman Britain guy People say to me, like, oh, what does David do? I'll say, you know, he, oh, yeah, he works on Roman Britain. And then, um, or on the cult of Mithras, for example. And then if they say, oh, wow, awesome. So, like, what specific, what specific aspect? Like, what should I go to him to talk, you know, to talk about? And I just be like, oh, I don't know. But the podcast, on the other hand, must mean that you actually learn in much more detail about what it is that people are doing. In the same way that, like, you interviewed me for the podcast and you know I work on Cassius Dio mm. and yet when we got into the podcast you actually l- learn a bit more about presu- hope, hopefully learn a bit more about who Cassius Dio is and why he's interesting so presumably this is also been a really good way to um, get, get a better knowledge of what, of what people are doing and had you, have you learned from the podcast do you think? From the- oh yeah I mean there's, there's been a lot of things I've learned about as I say particularly when you go out of your own sphere of like, normal research in terms of some of the people I've spoken to, I mean, a good example is talk to May Musier. That was really interesting. May talking about uh, the manuscripts, the, the the project she's been a part of, looking at manuscripts from Eritrea and Ethiopia from the 4th century. Mm-hmm. That's stuff that I didn't really know anything about at all. And then when you actually see the manuscripts and you see how they look in some way so similar to aspects of manuscripts in the, the Mediterranean and in Northern Europe that were being produced at that time, I mean, that, was, that, was, that was fascinating. That was mm-hmm. Interesting insight, and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's as in many ways, I suppose, there's been a lot of stuff there has been food for thought. I think more food for thought has just been talking to people just about the general academic landscape, though. Uh, I think that's been that's been interesting because you start to appreciate more. I think, particularly in terms of, I found ideas of representation that's been very interesting. Trying to, there's from the off, it was something that was in my mind to to try and um, to try and factor in when I was asking people to come on. But you do realise when you know that the subject that we 
that we that we teach and that we research in is uh, is predominantly white. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the gender gap has not been something that's been too difficult to address on here. Mm -hmm. But finding people, well, not even finding people, but getting enough people to come on that, to, or getting people to contribute um, to make it varied in terms of. Uh, be, being representational of, of, well, I suppose, modern society in Britain, which is what you want to aim to do, um, it's been a tad more difficult than I thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, I realised it would be difficult in some respects, um, but it has been in some, res some respects slightly more difficult than I thought it would be. And that, I think, is quite reflective of the general kind of landscape. And it's, when you start having to actually engage with stuff like that, and then you realise, mm -hmm. when you're dealing with it directly, then you realise that when these issues that we talk a lot about about representation, um, you do realise how important they actually are to, to try and bring through, um, but it can be quite difficult to, to, yeah, to well, with the best of intentions to sometimes address. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and because in some universities as well, I mean, some research has been done also to show that basically, um, even if uh, you are, I mean, even if you get into a, a university position as well. Like in some universities, there's been recent research showing that you're like something like thirty percent more likely to actually get declined um, for promotion if you are uh, not white. Mm -hmm. um, like the rate of um, promotions being rejected is actually much higher if you're not white. Yeah. And so there are all sorts of structural inequalities going on here as well. Um, so I think yeah, the, the way you've, I, I'm like I'm a podcast subscriber, so I think like the way you've been trying to you've been trying to cast your net quite wide. I think it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really good. I didn't actually realise I went to one of those workshops they recently had going on that they organised in Seckle, uh, and they said in their workshop that there's only twenty five female professors in the UK from uh, from a black background. And one of the people that have a podcast is Catherine Harlow, which, which would be one of those, you didn't realise at the time that she'd be one of those 25 people, but yeah. uh, wow, well, you just realise that those sort of things, yeah, the points of it, well, I didn't realise that at the time, I say numbers wise, and then they tell you that and you're like, holy crap. Yeah, exactly, that's really quite scary, actually, that's really worrying, because if you'd ask, if you ask one to guess, then I think the number one would guess would be much, much, much higher, actually, yeah. that, that's a really shockingly low statistic. Yeah. What about uh, your uh, your audience? Did, did you have do you, have you had any reactions from let's say students and um, do you have any impression about um, how they liked how they enjoyed the podcast? If there is also a diverse audience for your podcasts, uh, is there? I it's it's difficult to say actually in terms of diversity. You can see why people listen to it and. London and Canterbury are the top two, which is, is quite obvious. Yeah. But together, they only make up around 25% of the listeners. Um, you get people listening all over the world, from Australia to North America to uh, Ireland to other places in Europe, etc. So it's very interesting. You can't obviously know. You can just get a location, but you don't know who, who it is that's listening. Amongst the students, uh, I did get a student recently who told me that she'd been listening to it and her favourite episode was the one I did with Amila Power at Track and that was, I mean that was a very good episode and I think in some respects one of the more important episodes because we talked a lot about things like um, transgender identity and archaeology which is something that you know, Miller is coming to the table with with personal experience of mm -hmm. uh, and they said that was one of their favourite episodes and I think that, going back to what we were just talking about a moment ago, is very much as I say, it's very important about representation because then you realise that students probably latch on to certain things where you, 
that you talk about on the podcast, but when you're talking about things that perhaps they don't come across so much in terms of what they do at uni. Yeah. I, I, I honestly can't think of any situation at the moment where we would actually have a discussion like that, at least in the modules I teach. I mean, maybe you come across the issue. No, 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 when people start doing research projects or when they do postgraduate study or doctoral study, then people start like actually specialising and doing actually much much kind of deeper or more interesting or new work. Um, so yeah, that makes absolute sense. But overall, I mean, I can tell you, I don't know. I mean, I know students do listen to it, but it's, it's I, I, I don't know. It'd be, it'd be interesting to, to get a bunch of them sat around and have a listen to it and get their thoughts on it, I suppose. Maybe that could be episode 51. <laughs> a bonus episode bonus for, for loyal listeners. Although some of them maybe you're just saying that's my face, and then when you actually see them going, like, what do you think of the episode? And they're like, I haven't actually ever listened to it. <laughs> I've, I have heard some, I've actually heard some compliments um, because I've had a couple of students report to me that they listen to the podcast as well, which, uh, which I think is really, really cool. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And it's a really good way, I think, for our students to study, not to study the subject more perhaps in their own time, but to be immersed in the subject more in their own time. Because I think we, we send our students home to go and read. Mm-hmm. articles or to mm-hmm. do seminar prep and very often they're dealing certainly in ancient history anyway they're dealing with the written word so to actually jump further just pot around the house cooking their dinner and listen to a podcast about the ancient world um i think is such a, an amazing way to kind of keep them immersed um yeah. when they're at home as well that isn't just reading well and i think it's also interesting to hear your lectures in a more um reflective mode basically so this is not simply about delivering content this is about like personal stories personal interests and personal journeys and how how do people come to study classics what do they think is valuable about it Mm. Um, um, uh, and and what's valuable about their specialisms Uh, i think um, i think it's, it's it's very interesting it should be very interesting for most students i think um, to to sort of get some of these reflections and, and maybe it will trigger them to think about it as well. Mm. And then I think I think if that happens, which I know has happened because I've seen I've heard people talk about it, um, I think you have achieved something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that ring endorsement <laughs> on David's behalf. <laughs> I'm sure you've achieved um, something. Yeah. It's, it's it's I suppose in some respects as well. From respect, I mean I have now created on on the the Audiobook platform a, a playlist of just interviews related to Ken and I suppose it's, it's just I mean when you're doing things like the PGCHE um, as they were telling us at the time that you don't even realise it but students will look at their lecturers and see them up on a uh, kind of almost a pedestal they, they can't imagine they, they don't there's almost this gap that exists between student and, and lecturer in terms of their like how can I ever get to that level of that person's app because they're so super smart and they've done all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. Oh my God, my and students think I'm an idiot. Well, I think my students probably think I'm an idiot as well. But I don't know, in, in terms of, from what we're told though, at least, that students that do sometimes think that there's this gap that exists. Mm-hmm. But I think by having something where they can listen to their lecturer talk about their own personal experiences and they kind of understand the lecturers are actually a lot more human, perhaps, than they realise at first, that... Um, I mean, so many people that have come on the podcast, their story has not been one of, I decided to do this, and then I achieved bang, 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 mm. and now I'm where I'm at. It's often been a case of, yeah, I kind of fell into this because I did this, and I did this, and I mean, it's, well, not all the time I fell into it, I mean, a lot of it's, 
a lot of what people do is uh, by their own self-determination as well. But a lot of stuff hasn't been a straightforward journey for most people. Um, if you go back to, say, for example, the very first episode of Ellen, Ellen talking about she started you need to do, I can't remember what it was now, it was chemistry, biology, one of the mm-hmm. sciences, and uh, she got into, the, at the end of the first term, she's like, I'm just not enjoying this, mm-hmm. went home and then had to have a rethink, and then the next, next start of the next academic year, started back up again in archaeology, and even recently having Richard Reese on the podcast, Richard talking about how he went to UCL and studied biochemistry, left with a 2-2. Um, and you wouldn't think that somebody's gone on to be this influential figure in from on a British archaeology, mm. left university in a different subject. I mean, you expect people like that as well to have achieved a first. Mm. And the fact that he didn't, and now he's got to where he's got to. I think it, uh, it gives you an insight into that most people who have got to become academics or even you know, archaeologists or whatever mm. it's often not been as I say a very straightforward journey and that in most cases there has been you know, have to taking a long way around to get to somewhere or it's been you know, circumstances that led them into a certain situation so uh, yeah I hope in some respects for the people that have listened to it they can sit there and go oh it doesn't kind of matter if I screw up a bit in places and it doesn't matter if things go a bit wrong because that's happened to everybody and there's still opportunities there as I say I think something that's come through a lot of the time is uh, just people's desire or people's enjoyment of the subject their enthusiasm for it is what kind of keeps carrying them through I think anyway when, when did your start as well so I think this is this is a good time surely to talk about your journey as well your <laughs> bumpy ride I mean when did this start and why did you enter archaeology in the first place uh, I'll tell you I'm going to fill my glass with more <gasps> oh allow me please <laughs> allow me to do this but only just before I serve myself <laughs> there we are there we are delicious lovely Matt, would you like a bit more? Oh, you're so sensible. Oh my god, I'm definitely going to have some more. Don't judge me. Well, so we've got to use it up, so... We do have to use it up. I mean... We will use it up. I suspect we will. I don't think we have to be worried about the journey of this morning. <laughs> this is not going to be a bumpy road. This is going to be a smooth, bubbly ride. Uh, so yeah, your journey. Tell me about your smooth and bubbly ride, or otherwise. <laughs> uh, oh my god, that sounds there's, awful. There's many, there's many, <laughs> there's many bubbles. Okay. <laughs> um, Here we go again. I'm on gas down. It's so actually the irony there was when I uh, one of the things that comes up a lot of the time is necessarily that people didn't from the offset see themselves going into archaeology or ancient history. Mm. Um, I only ever had did. I I was somebody that from a very young age was like, I'm going to be an archaeologist. Not necessarily a Roman archaeologist, but an archaeologist. Um, initially, I like so many, I suppose, archaeologists, I did want to be a paleontologist. Uh, I wanted to dig up dinosaurs. Mm. And then you realise that we don't have a lot of T-Rexes in this country mm. or a lot of Brachiosauruses or whatever. And also, as well, a lot of it meant spending time understanding geology and things like that. And... Uh, my interest maybe started to waver at that point and then I mean I say this is still a relatively young age and I picked up whole horrible histories and then it was just <gasps> I love from that those point books. on it was just I was I was done I was uh, it was all about history in terms of human history and but I like the idea of archaeology because I didn't really grow up watching Time Team or anything like that so much I mean I caught episodes on a Sunday evening but I wasn't that invested in it it was more 
the archaeology aspect of it came in because I grew up doing a lot of things, um, spending a lot of time outside. I was with the scouts all the way through to my later teenage years, so you know, doing a lot of things like camping and things like that was just kind of stuff that I was very used to, and I liked the idea of being outside, so the merging of history and being outside, I mean, archaeology was the obvious, mm-hmm. obvious path to take, and then I don't exactly know at what point I hit on I'm going to be a Roman archaeologist. I think a lot of that was probably determined by going to Reading, where you had to go to Silchester, uh, you had to if if you uh, yeah if you're an undergraduate there every summer you have to spend at least a bit of time at Silchester and that's like an excavation of a Roman town but I think it was probably before that anyway I think I'd lent in yeah I suppose actually probably part of it as well and this actually goes back to the first episode talking talking with Ellen about it uh, we were saying how both of us came from backgrounds where um, our parents are quite religious like us ourselves don't necessarily have any real beliefs or anything like that as such or not really you know committed to any sort of beliefs but um i suppose growing up with that influence of like a catholic background you're exposed to latin and mm. rome as a place actually yeah come to think of it probably when i was around about 15 i went on holiday to rome and that was that was probably a big turning point as well um so so yeah probably as i say yeah horrible histories meets being in the outdoors and then going to Rome and having that kind of Roman influence in my childhood anyway is probably what led me to go down the route of being, yeah, because undergraduate was ancient history and archaeology and, you know, Greece is interesting, but it didn't interest me enough as much as the Roman side of things for, for some reason. Um, and so that's that's where it ended up being and then, and then from there on in. Although I'd always say um, when I went to do my Masters at Leicester, that was a big step up and that was when I was like, oh, that was, that was when I think it shifted from being an archaeologist to the more academic side of things mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and then I came to get a PhD and then I left. Because you, could, <laughs> you could have done it in a different way as well, couldn't you? I mean, I mean, without doing the PhD, my understanding is that there are, you, you could have become a professional archaeologist as well. You could be doing archaeology like for companies, right? And you could... Be... Yeah, but that's pretty... I don't want to say grim, but... Commercial archaeology is not necessarily the most attractive long-term mm-hmm. job because it's of any graduate job you can have, it's one of the worst paid. Uh, you come in on around twenty grand a year, and it is quite possible that five years later you'll still be on around twenty grand a year. Um, the the contracts don't tend to be very long. the The work is obviously very physical, and that will take its toll eventually. Um, but yeah, it's just. Uh, you know, this time of year when you're standing outside and it's freezing cold in a field and you're soaked in clay and you've not found anything, you're like, oh, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side of it, you have absolutely great days and you meet, like, most of the people I work with in commercial are uh, great people as well and uh, in, in some respects I really enjoyed it, particularly doing, when I worked for Oxford Archaeology, I spent a lot of time on away work where they basically put you in a and b mm-hmm. Monday night to Thursday night and then they give you an extra allowance to go out and buy, well, to go out and buy dinner because you obviously can't cook for yourself in the B&B so that was quite nice you know you go out to a restaurant every night I mean you can't go to like a five star Michelin restaurant or whatever <laughs> uh, it's uh, you know it's quite nice in that respect and uh, most of the time you spend in the pub which oh well on the flip side of that after about four days you're just like I need a break from this yeah it's uh, like so hungover constantly yeah, but it's you know. uh, no I mean it's, it, it's I, I think actually as a job when you're younger it's great to have mm-hmm. but you start to realise with the current landscape of the way it is 
to keep going with that can be very difficult. And also as well, like part of it is just, I like doing research and I like putting my own ideas out there, which if you're doing commercial work, okay, you can, once you get up to supervisor level or project officer level, you oversee the, a site and you have to do the site report and you maybe publish stuff like that. But you know, even then a lot of that stuff is just great literature that goes online that people only see if it's relevant. Uh, you might get lucky and get a major site which becomes a cornerstone of research for years to come, a bit like the Bloomberg site in London, re-excavating there, not just because of the Temple of Mithras, which is obviously a benefit, but um, all the material that came out of it so well preserved. I mean, the problem they've got there is they basically can't afford to even do all the post-ex uh, write-up because there's so much material you need to fund the post-excavation for a long time. Um, so I just felt like, as well, I suppose you could say, it's great. I love doing field work, but I felt like I wanted to make a contribution in terms of research as well and progress with my own ideas about things a lot more. And obviously academia gives you more scope to do that. Um, although there are days where I miss field work as well. I miss the days of going at eight o'clock and then finishing at five or four, half past four and then going back to my B&B and then just going to the pub. It's <laughs> that does sound quite idyllic actually, if you're out in the countryside. Uh, get your barber and your wellies on. Well, I mean, it's the middle of summer or springtime. Well, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you do, as I say, you do find some, you do find some really cool stuff. Um, I remember when we were digging, when I was working for Oxford Archaeology, just down the road at Faversham, mm. close to here, uh, and in one of the trenches, we found a Iron Age toiletry set. So a pair of tweezers, an ear scoop, and a kind of a nose. Hold on, an ear scoop? Yeah, yeah, I heard of that before. Isn't like a for earwax? Yeah, yeah, so they would... Uh, It's a sort of spoon. Yeah, yeah, it's a really tiny, fine spoon where you scoop the earwax out. But obviously somebody had put it into like a leather bag or something and chucked it into a pit or dropped it. And uh, the the, the container's long gone, but the three instruments were uh, copper alloy, so they came up and I was just like... The guy, actually, it wasn't me that found it, but he was uh, one of my colleagues at the time that found it, and he was very blasé about it. He was like, oh, it's no matter. And I was just like, oh my God, this is <laughs> like, but, like, to find no, something... 20 pence piece. Yeah, 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 it was just like, but to find something like that, to find like these like instruments, so like yeah. from the late Iron Age into the early Roman period, so fine in there, just, it's not something that you come across that often. Mm. Pottery, animal bone, that stuff, okay, pretty regular, but to find something like that, that was a, that was a, wow, holy, holy, holy crap moment. Mm. You've, you've uh, told me um, before that you've done fieldwork in several countries, in the UK, of course, but also in, in Kosovo, I think, and yeah, yeah, yeah. in Italy. Is there any... I'm not an archaeologist, so I have no idea about this, but is there any difference? Is the experience very different when you go to different countries? Or <laughs> you're in the Mediterranean, or uh, is it more dependent on the company you're, you find yourself in? Yeah, in different ways. Um, I suppose you could say when I was in, I was in Cyprus for for two months, and that was just after I finished undergraduate, and that was absolutely fantastic. I think that was one of the really formulative experiences of my career. Um, I did a Grampus Heritage Exchange where you know, I went out to Cyprus, and it was two months excavating uh, early Christian basilica on the coast. It was like living in a Cypriot village. In the, in the south half, in the Greek half of the, the country, uh, near Akrotiri. There's, there was an RAF base there, but we were living in a village that was separate for it, but it was very weird. Like, we went to a bar, like the nearest bar on a 
weeknight there was nobody there and if you went on a Friday night or a Saturday night it was full of RAF guys it was a very strange dynamic there was like, no escaping from yeah. the pub well it was also very strange for me because I was one of only two guys on that got like out of the group that went out there and there was like five or six girls so when you go as a group into the bar on a Friday night and all the guys have come off the RAF base you're oh, like oh I'm in a really awkward situation here but that was that was interesting because, I mean, first of all, it was fantastic because the, the Basilica, uh, we got down to the mosaics, which are still preserved, marble capitals of columns that were coming up. Uh, we found the tomb of a priest uh, in an alcove. He was mostly gone, but there were still bits of pieces of him left and what he was wearing. And I mean, there was this whole big moment where they had to get a bunch of people in because he was in a sarcophagus, essentially, and to lift the lid off of it. Um, and that was a big parole because also with stuff like that like you can't just do it you have to actually for something like that you have to get members of the Greek Orthodox clergy to come down and oversee it because you're you're essentially uncovering what, what they see as one of their own so there has to be prayer said and everything like that oh and it's, wow yeah, it's yeah. so cool it was, it's like it's like tomb raid it is I was um, like wow I was with, like with clerics I was sat there being like I hope every day I go was all like this few years later I'm sat in Favisham like in a field just like oh, <laughs> that was a long time ago now but that was that was fascinating and then what was interesting about that was um, just from a methodological perspective is the way they did it was with I suppose what we refer to as the Mortimer Wheeler box approach where basically you've got a site and you just stick squares in at equal distances so you basically have a grid that appears uh where you just dig down but it's uh in some respects i suppose in this country we would look at that as being a relatively outdated way of doing it it's interesting there and this is not to put down other places but there is a general feeling that because of the growth of commercial archaeology in this country the professionalization of archaeology we probably to some extent do field work to a higher degree of I suppose you would say accuracy than, than they do in other places because they don't have professional archaeology to the extent that we do so it's very you know, in this country there's very much a systematic way of doing it uh, so that was very interesting in terms of the way we approached it it was doing it in a way that was very unfamiliar to me previously and mm. not probably something I would end up doing again but it was I mean just in terms of material it was absolutely fascinating Kosovo was, was Kosovo was a very interesting one there's a long story that's important for Kosovo and I loved Kosovo as a place. I thought Pristina was fantastic. It's a very cosmopolitan capital city because of obviously the recent history. Mm-hmm. And there's like a UN, essentially, I suppose you might say, task force there. But it's very much got American, a lot of English, a lot of French people, along with the uh, the Kosovans as well themselves. But uh, in that situation, that was that was fascinating because we didn't dig anything for the first few weeks uh, because of various issues that arose. So basically, I ended up eating a lot of. Because in that part of the world, a lot of when you go to a restaurant, you basically just eat a lot of meat, drink a lot, drink a lot of beer alongside that as well. And actually, it was one of the few digs that I came back from where I think I put on weight rather than because like usually the physical, the physical side of it means that you actually get quite fit. In that in that respect, we spent so long just waiting around, waiting for the green light to do anything. And because I wasn't paying anything, I think it was basically the French government that were bankrolling it. Um, every night it was like let's just go to a restaurant and then you go to a restaurant and then you look at the menu and then the waiter would come over and be like what do you want and people would be like uh, and he was like do you just want the platter of meat and then he would just be like okay and they would be like what do you want to drink we'll just have a load of beers and then it would just and it just went like that for like like two weeks and then eventually we dig 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 and that was the final few days started to turn up some some, some good stuff but prior to that it was a bit of a it was a bit of a catastrophe 
But, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it was still, it was a fascinating experience. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, I suppose it does vary. I mean, like, in Italy, it was mainly just surveying and, um, yeah, that was nice. Although, I, I was thinking back to that and I still, I mean, as you know, I'm involved with, uh, uh, hopefully, a project that will, that will go ahead in Italy. Uh, Alessandro, mm-hmm. who works for the Soccer Tondante of... Uh, Turin, who, who contacted me about that. It was actually him that I was working with in Italy previously, many years ago, and I still remember where we were, where we were doing the surveying uh, of Stuni, which is the sort of southern, you think of Italy as a boot, I mean, you probably don't know where it is anyway, but you think of Italy as a boot, and it's the heel of the boot around that kind of area. I remember Alessandro coming over to me and the other guys and saying, oh, there was uh, fig trees there, and he was like, oh, the figs have just ripened. You've got to try them. Here's, here's some figs. Didn't realise that the figs are a laxative. Uh, I still think he did and this purposely. How did you not know that? I've I, I never really had figs before, to be quite honest with you. It just, yeah, it, but every time you... If you go to, like, Boots and you buy, like, Seneca or something, it's always got, like, pictures of figs on the front and stuff like that. Maybe I'm just very regular. Your brand, your, your, <laughs> your, your brand awareness is awful. That was, uh, yeah, that was, that was a disastrous 24 hours that came after that. It was, <laughs> I was just like... Well, I mean, you're in a trench, so... Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, like I said this is good because it was surveying, but I mean, it was... Well, I said it didn't really make any difference. You just, yeah, uh, yeah, after that I realised... Uh, I, I think to, to this day, I swear he did it on purpose, that he was like, eat a fig, have another fig. Just waiting to see how it had and realising, probably cottoning on to the fact that I didn't quite realise where this was all going to lead to. So, uh, yeah, yeah um, that's my abiding memory of excavating in Italy. Um, but it's always fascinating to do abroad and uh, I think the, the benefit of that is always though, because to do that you obviously have to spend, a, I suppose you might say, an extended period of time in not necessarily a very touristy mm-hmm. place yeah. and you get more, you get more interaction with... Uh, Skeptics like local people, but in terms of like more just everyday life, you experience it, and it's much more of a yeah, you just experience um, yeah, the, the local culture a lot more than you would do. And you're obviously working with people with a local background as well, so you get to experience it in ways that you don't do as a tourist, or even I suppose to some extent, if you go to places like for a conference or whatever, you know, when you're actually forced to work with people for a month or whatever, and you yeah, you get a very different view of the view of places, but uh, yeah, hopefully uh, you get a chance to excavate a few other places abroad as well. We have a wish list. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I mean, a wish list would be to excavate. I told you, would be to excavate in Rome one day. I suppose just to to finally put uh, some of the theory into practice. And, and do you need it to be in a particular place? particular country of Europe to prove some kind of theory that you've developed? Oh, well, I mean, the, the, the best one to ever excavate, I suppose, would be the, the supposed Mithraeum in Sidon. Is it, is it in Beirut? I mean, or is it Syria, Sidon? Um, somebody, I thought it was Syria, but then somebody yeah. brought this up before me and said they thought it was Beirut there. Syria, I don't yeah, it's, it would be Roman Syria, but I don't know where... Uh, oh, God, I just typed in Sodom in <laughs> Um, into my Google. Hold on. It'd be interesting to ask Well, Lebanon, yeah, sorry, but yeah, Lebanon actually. It's in Lebanon, and yeah. indeed, it's the third largest city in Lebanon now. Yeah, because yeah. um, it's it's an interesting backstory because there was a guy around the turn of the 20th century who was uh, he's sometimes referred to as a journalist. I think that's a very loose term. He was uh, a bit of a shady character. Uh, I think his name was something like Duriaglio. Duriaglio. Um, but he claimed that in Sidon he found an entrance to Emithraeum 
And this Mithraeum that he described was very bizarre. It goes, you have to go through numerous gates, underground gates to get into it. It's got various rooms. It's a very fantastical description. But he found this group of Mithraic sculptures and he did present them. Um, in fact, they're now in the Louvre. If you go to the Louvre, um, they're hidden away. But they're actually fantastic. They're, they're so well done. They're all marble. They're a group of statues of various parts of the Mithraic narrative and some other deities as well. And they're dated, if the dating is correct on one of the inscriptions. Um, there's debate over whether or not it's local calendar or not. But if, if the understanding of the inscriptions is right, it, the, the sculptures were fashioned around about 400, about AD 400, mm-hmm. uh, which would put them obviously into late antiquity as well. But the thing is, is that these sculptures that he found, he produced, he, the, the problem was, was that he was wanted by the French government and the French government basically wanted to arrest him for something else. And he was being threatened by being deported back to France. And I don't think he ever was. And he produced these sculptures as evidence of finding this Mithraeum, but he never told anybody where the Mithraeum actually was. There was an article in uh, Topoi, the uh, the journal, a number of years ago, where somebody actually went into some archives and found the notes that he wrote about this. And they theorised that the the location that he's talking about is under what is a there's a modern church there but they think the entrance is somewhere around where that church is but basically it's a very weird story and it is a very kind of almost Indiana Jones-esque story mm-hmm. of this kind of roguish character who discovered this Mithraeum which sounds Lost ludicrous underground yeah but he found these sculptures and everybody nobody's ever really questioned the legitimacy everybody seems to think they are legit sculptures I mean I suppose it's possible he bought them on a black market and was trying to throw people off the scent by saying I found this and he didn't really but it seems quite likely he must have found something to have got the sculptures so it's it's a very fascinating story it's a fascinating story and the description of the the Mithraeum if it exists it's very fascinating as well but it's this it's this bizarre story and it's it would be an interesting thing to try and actually uncover it so yeah that would be top of the list in terms of this this missing Mithraeum that apparently uh we're told we're told exists and people accept, but they yeah people accept the Mithraeum exists. They just don't accept his description of it, which mm-hmm. is uh, it's, it's interesting as to what it is. But maybe it was a Mithraeum. Maybe it was something else that he found. Maybe it was uh, aliens. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the guys yeah. who build the pyramids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The uh, peoples of the sea, or whatever they're called. Mm. Sea peoples. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those guys. Um, so, I mean, of course you've worked on Mithras and we can talk a little bit more maybe about your interest in Mithras. Um, but one, I mean, I think closely, most closely connected to what you just said is you have an interest in sort of the modern reception of, or the, let's say, 19th century reception yeah. of Mithras. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Because it, it seems to me that there is potential to make connections here. This guy may have found a sculpture, for example, a piece of sculpture, uh, and in order to um, show that he he might have had something important to offer the authorities in exchange for, I don't know, indemnity, mm. um, he may have come up with some kind of tomb story. Um, is it is is this what 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 could be going on here, or or? Um, um, I really don't know. Um, to be honest with you, um, I suppose that depends on how many Mithraic acts been excavated at the time. 
which I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many. I mean, there was a number of them that had been uncovered, but they're obviously, they're very rare as well in the eastern half of the empire. It's very unusual mm-hmm. to actually even find mm-hmm. one east of Italy, essentially. So I suppose it's possible. I mean, they are, there's, there has been quite a number of them found in France, Gaul, so maybe it was something that he'd come across previously. But I'm not sure, really. I mean, it's fascinating when you go back. I mean, it's fascinating reading stuff from the late 1800s early, into the early 20th century about what people thought the cult involved. I, one thing I actually do love is, just a bit of tangential, but is going back to some of those older, not just reports, but the big volumes by people like Kumon, um, who brought all the Micaraic material together for the first time. Uh, and back in the day, before they really photographed a lot of stuff so people just drew it instead mm. and then you go through and you've got all these carvings and these drawings of the various uh, the material I, I sometimes wonder like how that must have struck people because there's something a lot more I think when you see a photograph of something it's I suppose back, back then it was slightly different to now but when you see a photograph of something you know what it looks like straight away. Uh, when someone draws something and that's all you've got to go on, there's a kind of air of mystery to it more because you're not seeing the actual physical thing. I, I sometimes wonder, because some of the drawings you see do look quite impressive and slightly fantastical at times. So can I ask the, the guy you were talking about in, in, um, in Sidon, did he offer drawings or did he just give a description of what the... Uh... Um, I can't remember if he actually drew it at all. Um, he gave a description. Uh, you can see it's in uh, if you look at the big corpus, corpus of uh, Mithraic material from the mid twentieth century by Vermicera, uh, and he includes the description in there. He might have drawn it, although I think actually the, the drawings that I've come across have been later drawings based off of his description. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody came along and they said, "Oh, I found Mithraic," and it looks like this, people would just throw it straight out because they'd be like, this guy's a liar. And, and people have actually, as I say, called into question whether or not he's telling the truth because the guy was clearly a liar anyway. He had a bad reputation, so he, he might just be making up. But now we'd know for, well, I say for definite, because as I say, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a Mithraic. It could have been, it could have been a different uh, structure with just Mithraic sculptures inside of it somehow. But um, when you read stuff like that, it really... So you could say stimulates the imagination about archaeology, which nowadays I suppose it's more of a science. So as interesting as a site report can be nowadays, it's not quite got this level of intrigue to it. Although there's that guy recently that tried to sell what was it, the various papyri oh, to maybe an Oxford professor or yeah. something. Yeah, he tried to sell off those those fragment those fragmentary poems or something. Um, naughty boy. Yeah. yeah, I suppose there's a lot of that stuff that still goes on um, nowadays. So, I mean, uh, it, it sounds like there is still. I mean, Indiana Jones is, of course, a movie that is, I want to say, relatively recent, but now our students are going to laugh. <laughs> I showed a uh, gif of uh, The Last Crusade in my first intro to archaeology lecture, and I asked for a show of hands how many people recognised the film that it came from. And there was a fair number of them still put their hands up, which was reassuring. Yeah, um, once you get to a point where people are sat there blankly looking at it, then they'll start getting really worried. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But the, the, I mean, the interesting thing is that there is this very romantic idea about both about archaeology and about being a professor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, but this is obviously also, I mean, this is a kind of let's say a legacy of, of earlier times. And you were you were going to talk, but it interrupted you uh, about these kind of ideas about the cult of Mithras. Uh, let's say, in the 18th and 19th century. Can you tell us a little bit more about that uh, and what you find interesting about it? And, uh, 
Um, oh. I mean, you, I, I know that you were thinking about writing something about this. So oh, I have. I just you, need to you, set you already have. Yeah, yeah. Um, Are you willing to share some of your uh, <laughs> give the us more juicy? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, give us a preview. The the stuff that I wrote on was uh, well, the stuff that I've written is about uh, Rudyard Kipling's presentation of the cult, and that's just fascinating because it ties so much into uh, Kipling's own background. Kipling, we forget, I think nowadays, how widely read he was. Most people know him from the Jungle Book. Um, but just the sheer level of, the sheer amount of people that would have read him at the time is colossal. I mean, the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, he won that, I think it was like the first decade, like the first decade of the, the 20th century, and that's very representational of how, how widely read he would have been as well. And actually, the year after he. But, but not before Momsen won it. Did Momsen win it? I did not win it. yes. Okay. That's an interesting. When did Momsen die, actually? 19. No. No. Really? That late? Mm. You know, that late? My yeah. God. I mean, one wonders about how people cross paths in terms of, I can't imagine Kipling ever crossing paths with him. Well, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. I mean, certainly Kipling would have known people that knew Mobson because he knew quite well, a lot of classicists. There's a famous anecdote, uh, a report by um, an American writer, um, uh, Mark Twain, who oh. met, who went to a dinner in Berlin? He was in Berlin. He went to a dinner, and then an hour late, someone came in, and everybody basically bowed down and paid their respects. It was Momsen who came to quickly finish his dinner and leave again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's at that level, though, isn't it? Where you probably don't want to hang around because you're just going to have people coming up to you and trying to speak to you. But, uh, uh, um, but yeah, no, the, the, the Kipling. It was just. Uh, it's just interesting because Kipling. Kipling was somebody who had an interest in in, a, uh, in archaeology to a degree. He spent quite a bit of time on Hadrian's Wall visiting people, um, and, it, and it certainly had an impact on him. And when you look into it, you can draw certain dots between when he's there and when they excavate certain Mithraea. But um, it was fascinating because he was a Freemason as well, and it clearly uh, spoke to him in that regard. He saw the similarities there. But Kipling was also very, very sceptical about um, evangelical religion, uh, Christianity in particular, but even just broadly. I mean, when he was younger, his parents sent him to live with a couple when he was back in Britain. His parents, I think, were still out in India. They sent him and his sister back. And the, the husband out of that couple, I think, died. And then his widow was left to look after them. She was very, very, very nice to his sister, who she was hoping would marry her son. But apparently she, she, she treated Kipling himself horribly, and she was an evangelical Christian. And that stayed with him, I think, for the rest of his life. Uh, and he was very sceptical about anybody that tried to enforce their own religious beliefs on somebody else. And when you read his stories set in the Roman world the Christians don't come through it in very positively. Mm. Uh, they are often in that vein. If you read the year after he won the, the Nobel Prize, he uh, is when he published Puck of Pook's Hill, which has the several stories set in Roman Britain. And there is a... It's not an overt reference to Christians, but it, it clearly is a Christian. Basically, uh, Ponesius, the centurion, on his way up to Hadrian's Wall, is stopped by what is described as, I can't remember exactly the exact words, but basically it's a raving philosopher 
And then Parnesius' response to him is something along the lines of go and look at your own book or something. like I can't remember the exact wording of it. But basically, it's clearly a Christian that gets in his way who's got his Bible and is waving at him. And, and then he wrote another story which was about uh, Antioch in the first century where there's the riots between the Jews and the Christians and then the main, spoiler alert, the main character dies because of the riots. But he's got this real strong scepticism scepticism about that. But he seems to look at the cult of Mithras as being something that he he's oh this would be a much more this would be a better religion in terms of its principles because the way he saw it was not evangelical. It wasn't trying to press on to anybody else. It was you treat everybody as your brother and you you get along with everybody and you know it's it's a uh, yeah. I mean you have to be initiated into it when you are. It's this kind of universal brotherhood. Although that also links into his own misogyny. Obviously, it's, it's an all-male cult, and to him, I think he was against uh, the suffragettes, and he, he wasn't um, what well, he was, basically, you know, as many people at the time were misogynists, so the fact that it was all-male, it, it, it uh, spoke to him in that way as well. But it was it's just very interesting, though, how he talks about, in his stories, when you read it, and you can actually start to see, because he, he spoke to classicists, we know that he had correspondence with them, but you can pick certain things out, I think, how he's probably been influenced by people like Gibbon uh, mm-hmm. and other people that he knew at the time as well, of these narratives of the the violent Christianization of the Roman Empire. Is he, is he responding in any way also? I mean, he would have known, presumably, he would have read about the, the supposed Neronian persecutions as well and about all the injustices perpetrated upon the Christians, allegedly, by, mm-hmm. by Nero and all the rest. Is there a sense that he's kind of responding to that or like correcting that story? Um, possibly I mean I think in some respects he's also probably a product of his time because um, I think we tend to think of uh, the Victorian era and into the Edwardian era as being because it's in the past as being a very religious era though we also forget this is very much post-enlightenment where politics and religion are being split and when you look at something like Kipling's narrative the way he presents Christianity in some respects what he's trying to say is warning against the the British Empire enforcing Christianity on other peoples that essentially evangelical religion is a threat to empire rather than something that helps it so I think it's, it's possible he's doing that in some respects I think but I think it's just part of a broader rejection of that, those kind of themes um, but that, those kind of questions are interesting themselves I mean in preparation for doing the, the MA module next term the myth of the eternal city mm-hmm. I've gone off and read a lot of reception studies Maria Vike's uh, mm-hmm. yeah. works on um, the ancient world and cinema and it's very interesting there about I found that fascinating and uh, oh, partly because as well I've been saying for a while that nobody's actually written anything about Roman Britain in film and TV across the 20th century which I found fascinating there's been so much emphasis on Rome mm-hmm. and the Mediterranean but there's been very little about Britain itself and how it's represented which I think is, is something that needs to be tapped into and looked at like leading on from Kipling mm-hmm. uh, but going all the way through the 20th century what about King Arthur? because that, there's that you know the film King Arthur the whole point of Arthur Pendragon isn't it the whole myth of Arthur Pendragon is that he's either a Romano-Brit or he's like descended mm. very closely from like a generation or two of uh, the end of the Romano, uh, Romano-British aristocracy after the departing of the legion and all the rest. Yeah. And that kind of lends him a certain kind of um, 
certain kind of glamour or a certain yeah. polish the fact that he's the fact that he's from like from an elite aristocratic Romano British family. Yeah, yeah. That's like the only yeah, that's like the only example I can think of actually. Well, I mean, where got... there's this like Roman Britain thing uh, going on. Yeah, I mean well actually there's quite there's quite a few of them actually. I mean when you think about um, there was a film I think it was like Centurion that came out. The the Eagle of the Ninth has uh, appeared I've in film it. and T V, yeah. the the Rosemary Sutcliffe book. Yeah. Uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe to, to go back to Kipling as the, the big important thing about Kipling as well is the influence that he's had subsequently. Mm-hmm. Rosemary Sutcliffe wrote The Eagle of the Night, which has, has been made into various um, TV series and films. Um, Sutcliffe was a humongous Kipling fan, and she's very clear about that in her biography and her own work. In some respects, The Eagle of the Ninth and the other Roman Britain books that she wrote, clearly she draws from, draws from Kipling, and she's not ashamed to say that. But most authors... I, I've been surprised, actually, where I've looked at authors because originally the idea there was to actually look at representations of Carl Mithras in literature and what I realised was that the, the Rosemary Sutcliffe books I already knew were inspired by Kipling I came across another one which was The Eagle in the Snow which is from the 70s where the main character was a Mithraic initiate I then found out for a bit of research the guy who wrote it was actually stationed in India at the end of British hegemony there and because Kipling wrote about British India and he was a big fan of Kipling and he clearly would have read Pocket Poops Hill and clearly the, the Mithraic theme, themes in his book came from there it's almost you could almost see it as a sequel to uh, Kipling's books in some respects uh, and then Neil Gaiman who wrote American Gods which is now a TV series as well mm. in American Gods there's a brief conversation between two characters which they talk about Mithras mm. and I thought that's fascinating because it actually le- leans on very stereotypical images of, of the Mithraic cult and you could look at that and you'd think that Gaiman based his understanding of, of Kipling. And I discovered that there's a collection of Kipling stories where Gaiman recently published a few years ago that Gaiman did the forward to and talked about how Kipling's so important. So you can see the influence that Kipling's had in terms of subsequent authors, whoever, whenever they quite, quite often who have presented the Mithras cult in a fictional narrative have been big Kipling fans and that's clearly where the idea has probably come from mm. and then what you realise as well is that these people are far more widely read than essentially most academics will ever be mm. and most people in the general public if they formulate any ideas about the Mithraic cult this is where it's coming from and then if you trace it back then it just goes back to Kipling I think Kipling was the first person to take the cult of Mithras and actually put it in the minds of the general public mm. as something beyond the academic sphere and I think when you're talking about the study of the Mithras cult, then that actually becomes very important because mm-hmm. it's about the, the, the general population's perception of it. I've kind of gone on a tangent there. To go back to your original point, though, about on film as well, uh, uh, Carrie and Cleo as well. Yeah. The start of that is oh uh, set in Rome, Britain, where they're, yeah. uh, they're still dinosaurs and it's like really backward <laughs> but I, it's but now you've got the series was it Britannia as well and oh I don't know you've got uh, the, the horrible history film recently came out that was about Boudicca as well I was talking to somebody recently about that and we were saying how you can probably trace developments in British society through those films I think because mm. all films are produced in the, the social media of, of society at the time and um, I don't think it's any coincidence with you know, current ships the Britannia had the, I mean I've not really watched it but from people that have what they've told me who have watched it the, the, the story seems to really be a narrative that's leading up to like Boudicca um, 
and her revolt that's eventually where I end up like mm. this young girl in it and you can kind of see where she's going with the story and then the Rotten Romans film was about Boudicca as well mm. and it's probably very interesting in terms of current discussions about gender and mm. representation etc that there's if you look at these TV series of films that are coming out now they probably have a much stronger female element than they would have done mm. 20 or 30 years ago and uh, haven't people always been fascinated by Boudicca as well I mean she's always means if you think about the story the story of like of resistance to Roman rule in any in any way mm. in Roman Britain you think about Boudicca she's always she's always there yeah I think so I think part of that though is probably again time and place I think like most things she probably goes in and out of popularity thank you um, in terms I think probably Boudicca was probably pushed into the public consciousness um in the around the turn of the 20th century, largely because of the largely because of Queen Victoria being on the throne. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you go down to Parliament Square in London, there's the famous statue of her, yeah. uh, which was commissioned by Albert Boudicca's uh, Victoria's husband. <laughs> um, and so, also as well, probably you can find examples in the Thatcher years of Boudicca, particularly this idea mm-hmm. of somebody defending. Britain against you know European interests or international like mm-hmm. you know or in other international mm-hmm. powers with the Falklands as well but particularly uh, there's a, there's a cartoon that you you can find online of Thatcher in a chariot riding across Europe waving her handbag um, <laughs> so you you can see Boudicca I think Boudicca's star has probably risen in the last hundred years probably because of the legacy from the Victorian era, yeah. era and now obviously we had a brief period of the Edwardian period um, shortly thereafter that but then we've had another female monarch mm-hmm. for the most of the 20th century we've had the first mm-hmm. female British Prime Minister so I think she's been she's probably been uh, just an image that's been very relatable in terms of the, the circumstances of time I think if you went back 200 years ago I think you'd probably find it harder yeah. I think people like um Caractacus mm-hmm. uh, yeah. would probably be much more, not more well known, but there was like. But people would have people would have read and studied the speeches of Tacitus uh, yeah. in school, and so it would have been. It, I think yeah, it would have been way more on the agenda or on people's minds. They would have all kind of internalised this stuff. The Mons Graupius story and all the rest with him standing up and yeah. kind of arousing them to a revolt against the against the Latin invader. Yeah, but uh, I'd say I, I still think the. I think this this issue of how is Roman Britain presented in the media mm. is is something that's actually worth exploring because mm. that's the way the vast majority of people consume um, Romano British history. To consume history, <laughs> isn't that awful? Isn't that or isn't that isn't that phrase an awful indictment of our times that we consume history? Well, it is though. I mean, it's we teach content. It's a um, but they teach their customers. Yeah. Oh no no no! But I mean, if it's a, if it's a film or it's a TV series or it's a it's a novel, it's a, it's a product, and it, you have consumers that buy it. That's uh, and you have to tailor it to that audience, I suppose. That's it's, true. That's true. It's interesting. Yeah. You know, there's so much that we look at in terms of how Rome is presented and under Mussolini. It's mm, you know it's yeah. an interesting question of well, how do we deal with our own legacy of Rome mm. Britain? What is also interesting, and I don't mean to cut this short in any way, is that we're kind of back at the, the point of origin where you, when we asked you what sort of induced you to make these podcasts, mm. and you said, I want to know more about people and Roman Britain, and I want yeah. to have a discussion about Roman Britain mm. and, and want to share this via this new medium. So, in a way, are you complicit in this kind of... Could, 
consumerist culture of Roman Britain through the media? Uh, are you a podcast? capitalist stooge yeah. selling our subject? Well, I currently I have to get up to 10,000 downloads. Uh, <laughs> on, on, I think it's a month or a week to actually make any money off of this, so that's not going to have any time for me. I think well, we I mean, get a bot to download your things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll download it. Um, I'll download loads of time. I don't know. I'm also the, the the other thing about it though is just I'm just a nerd and I like films and TV series, mm-hmm. so it's crossing that boundary of my two interests of how it's represented. Um, I suppose it's total. The to- so I just think of a nerdiness. I'm a computer game nerd, and actually, there's been like this real kind of surge in an interest in Roman Britain in computer games. Yeah. Like Total War Britannia, I think there's like this for the uh, Total War computer game series. It's like an online um, MMO kind of version for Total War Britannia, and I think like Roman Britain's getting quite sexy in computer games. So that was my two cents in my own kind of area of yeah. geek because I know nothing about the films, but computer games yeah. on the other hand. It's, it's well. I mean, yeah, it just crosses genres. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the the limit of all that stuff is as well. Um, it's because uh, again, like computer games, are the way that a lot of people come to understand this stuff now. I mean, I think, yeah, it's great and all that we in academia produce books, articles, etc., on research. But at the mm. end of the day, the majority of the public are not going to no, follow no. that stuff. They, so, uh, but most when it comes to academia, they'll go to a museum or they watch a documentary. Mm. Um, Obviously, people that are very enthusiastic will sign up to journals and, and follow that stuff. But by and large, as I say, the vast majority of people, I think, the general public, the way they come to understand uh, the ancient world is through film, TV, media, less so, I suppose, radio now, but certainly yeah. podcasts. Um, and it, it's an interesting question as to how has that evolved in relation to society? And it's also what kind of messages are perhaps are, we, are being sent out by how it's presented mm. a friend of mine used to work for um, English Heritage he's been on the podcast actually uh, Chris Bates um, and when he was working for English Heritage they put out an animated video on YouTube about Hadrian's Wall mm. and it only had to be it could only be a few minutes long and the response they got to it was in some respects quite negative particularly from Scottish people and that was that was just interesting itself as a microcosm of this debate that kind of erupted around it because they talked about the wall keeping out barbarians. Mm-hmm. If you want to go into the nuanced argument about the wall, that's not what it's doing. It's mm-hmm. very unlikely. It's uh, we're told by like the historian Augusta, it's Hadrian separating the barbarians from the Roman world, um, but it's probably more of a customs barrier through somebody like the Brigantes mm-hmm. territory. Mm-hmm. But the reaction it got, particularly Scottish people, being like you're calling people north of the wall barbarians obviously to some extent forgetting that the wall is nowhere near Scotland yeah. uh, it's too far south to even well also because then the, the next one up is that the Antonine Wall is literally in Scotland yeah. as well and aren't the Picts anyway aren't the aren't the Picti actually from Northern Ireland in any case I mean, um, it's, oh you tax my knowledge there um, because there's some I remember reading about this I'm sure I'm sure of it you have the Caledonians up in what is now Scotland indeed Picts come, yeah no the Picts, the, Picts, Picts, the Picts are from Northern Ireland I, I, um, I think I'm sure at least there is this myth so in, in, in the kingdom of five mm-hmm. um, <laughs> there is uh, this is myth that this is the the old kingdom of the Picts I think, mm-hmm. that may have been it may it may have course be a complete fabrication yeah um, but it may also be after they migrated from northern ireland yes indeed i'm, yeah. ju- I'm sure that i'm sure the pits um come from northern ireland in fact um so this whole this whole discussion about actually the 
you know, the the Picts being being the barbarians and that being offensive in any way to the, to the Scots. I don't, that doesn't that doesn't quite work. And then, yeah, the Antonine War literally runs through Scotland as well. Yeah. So that doesn't quite work. Yeah. And also, was... the historian Augustus is always wrong anyway. So. Well, well <laughs> but it was just it was just I, I just I, I found it fascinating the re- reaction they got to it, mm-hmm. and and also to some extent they are limited by what you can do in terms of making a three-minute animated video. You can't yeah. go into this long treatise about what is the war, what was the war meant for. You just want to engage people in the subject. It's very interesting. What points do you pick to get across? How do you present it? And then what kind of reaction do you get to it? Mm-hmm. And obviously there are elements there where... I suppose there's, there's elements of like nationalistic sentiment that people have. Mm-hmm. Like People saw that as being insulting towards the Scottish because they... Basically, the animation presented people in Northport as being barbarians. Um, obviously, we were saying the the reality is that probably wasn't the case. But even if you you could take that to another level and simply argue the fact that the, the modern Scottish, I mean, what actual connection do they have to the people that were living north of the wall in at least well first half of second century likewise, Britain? Likewise, it's, for the modern English as well. Yeah. I mean, what connection do we really have to to the people to the, the Romano Britons? Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's but it's it's interesting how people take that run with it and the perceptions they have for it. Mm-hmm. But as I say, going back to what you're saying, linking it back to the start, what do people when people look at Roman Britain, what do they what do they think? Because I think now actually, if I was going to do the Roman Britain module again, um, I would start in the very first lecture by talking about the history of uncovering Roman Britain rather than starting with Caesar's expeditions, mm-hmm. um, because. And I mean, I did teach this previously, but I think I would say I'd do it a slightly different way around this time, because I still think that how we deal with Roman Britain in the early 21st century is very much interlinked with how Britain deals with its own imperial legacy. The fact that only 100 years ago we had our own empire, we went around essentially conquering places and owning places and, you know, giving or telling people how to operate and ruling over our places and that's what Rome did to us and there is the traditional narrative of what the Romans did for us and all these mm. wonderful gifts they imparted to Britain which turned us into this you know, scarecrow civilised uh, mm. nation but it's actually you know, the, the reality is, is it's one of a tremendous power imbalance of an imperial power that takes over in Hadrian's all itself there's clearly evidence of farmland underneath it mm. they had to take the land off the people to build that wall and the wall is a big statement to those people in the surrounding area mm. of who's in charge and you, know, you have the Vindolanda tablets mm-hmm. where uh, there's the trader who complains to the uh, commander at Vindolanda about being beaten up by Roman soldiers and I just think it's, it's fascinating in terms of a hundred years ago, what we were doing in India and Africa, if you go back 2,000 years ago, is what the Roman Empire was doing here, but I don't know if that, that, that you know, that's something we talk about in academic circles, I don't know how much of that goes beyond that, and how, it's interesting how people perceive the Roman period, and whether or not they draw the link of our own imperial legacy. And their connection to the Roman period, because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I, I grew up in the Netherlands, and we we don't really have a Roman past, or at least we don't see a continuity, and I think there are several reasons. We were also a colonial power, but we we didn't really use the Romans to to as a sort of forerunner of us. Um, we don't even really see a connection with this Batavian revolt, even mm-hmm. though in in the Enlightenment period we called ourselves the Batavian Republic yeah. for uh, for Blue Monday, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, Napoleon came and it was all over. Um, but um, I think in the Netherlands the the idea of the past is much more conceptualized in terms of the Reformation. So one of the 
one of the ideas that is very strong in Dutch, it was very strong, and I think there is a legacy of that still going on, but it's a different discussion, um, about sort of the, the, the power of the nation and the, um, and the colonial power is that we were bringing Calvinism to the mm -hmm. world, basically. So uh, we had the right kind of belief, we, we fought off the Spanish, we were Catholics, um, but so we don't, because we, we are, well, are, the sort of myth of independence um, is so strongly tied up with the Reformation and the, the, the violence that it involved, um, that there is this breaking point that we can't, we can't include the Middle Ages and therefore we can't have this continuity with the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And so coming from this background, I find it extremely fascinating to see in this country how much Roman Britain is alive, basically, and how much it means to people, and how much it means in popular media. I mean, if you would throw in this Batavian revolt in, on, on, on Dutch television, people would think, what is this? Like, I have no idea. Are, are they geeking out and we, we don't care about this? Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think really this comparative perspective has given me, uh, I mean, entering this country last year to, to start to teach here, um, it, it was very eye-opening to see this connection and I think mm -hmm. um, the, the podcast has been very good at sort of prodding into these kinds of questions. What does it mean and what do you do with it? And most people you've interviewed are researchers or work in museums or work in education. But I think this popular culture project which you have in mind is really, yeah. really fascinating. It's interesting, yeah. back to what you were saying though about um, Scotland as well with the likes of... Uh, Calgacus and, mm -hmm. and the Agricola doing the speech. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to find anything in Scotland about Calgacus being a national hero, even close to anywhere close to the level of Boudicca. Yeah, that's true. That's Compared to true. William Wallace that's absolutely, or yeah, Robert the Bruce, course, absolutely. It's, that's another level. But, but it's yeah, very interesting yeah, how the contrasting narratives you have yeah, between the, exactly between I, England and Scotland. Precisely, and these these things should be about where people where people feel that power lies and how. Uh, history relates to power and justifies power. Mm. So I think the, one of the important aspects, surely, in the reception of uh, Roman history in Britain and its use for the justification of, Rome, of Britain's imperial power um, in the Industrial Revolution is surely the playing fields of Eton and our great public schools, mm, yeah. where the classical tradition was extremely strong and still is extremely strong. And schoolboys would have read about the Roman Empire practically every day. And those sorts of schoolboys are the ones also who will go on to populate the civil service and the upper ranks of the military and the clergy and the political class. So it is education which drives forward, I think. Um, in, in a way, you could say education in the history of the Roman Empire and indeed in Britain that actually drives forward, that gives impetus to to the British Empire in the 19th and early 20th century. Whereas in Scotland, I think the context is very, very different, not only because there are relatively few great public schools with a classical tradition. I mean, you can think about places like Gordonstone, maybe, um, where, where I think Prince Charles went, but otherwise. But, the, but I think William Wallace is the, is the national hero because they're very similarly, actually, I think, to the Netherlands, when you're thinking about the Netherlanders rising up against the Duke of Parma and trying to expel the Catholics. Similarly, the, the story going on there, rather, is actually a, a one of an imbalance of power where William Wallace is the peasant farmer who rises up when actually he was probably a knight 
anyway, and mm. obviously very well educated and from a well-off background, but that's not what's important. It's about the story we want to tell. I, I think there, again, um, a, a particular political point is being made about power or the imbalance of power. And yeah, I think the, for, for people in Scotland, William Wallace has that, has that kind of romance perhaps a little more. Whereas I think, yeah, for, for people from the playing fields of Eton, it, it was Rome. Because that was about justifying a position yeah. of power. I was just going to say, it's fascinating, just in terms of going back to representation of media as well, um, the image of William Wallace or uh, Braveheart mm. uh, and the impact that has as well. Most people now, maybe not in Scotland itself, but around the world, if you talk about William Wallace, the first thing that springs to mind is the... Freedom! <laughs> yeah. It is that, though. I think yeah. it's interesting. But as you say, I mean, that that obviously puts to one side a lot of the actual historical accuracy of it in, in order to tell a good story. Um, but actually, now, now I think about it, it's an even more interesting... Um, study, I think, uh, I was talking about the, the relationship between modern, I suppose you might say England and its Roman Britain past, but actually looking at the UK mm-hmm. and looking at the different relationships that the modern past of the UK has mm-hmm. with its Romano-British past is, is interesting because obviously, as is well documented now, Scotland did have a lot of, did come under a lot of did have a lot of uh, Roman influence in it. We find mm-hmm. in a number of places, uh, you know, a large number of Roman finds, Roman material cultures mm-hmm. spreading beyond there. There were certainly, you know, fort, Roman forts running up into, into Scotland as well. Obviously, Wales. Uh, I know some some study has been done. There is a difference between Wales and England, mm-hmm. which shows a very different reception. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wales, the, going into things like the national curriculum they teach there in schools, uh, very much focuses on the Iron Age. Whereas in England, the, the emphasis is far more on the Roman period. Yeah. Because for yeah. Wales, that kind of links back to the idea of being independent. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, but yeah, it's the, the stuff that's been done about that in terms of the curriculum, which is very interesting and how it differs in different regions of the UK mm-hmm. uh, and what part of our past we, we look back to. But uh, also as well, I mean, it'd be fascinating just to, to do a project where if you get funding for it to sit around and just watch TV series and movies and just make notes yeah. on it and just be like, oh, well, perhaps that should be your next step, actually, uh, to get paid for geekery. Yeah. Um, well, oh my God, Netflix and chill, but just getting paid, <laughs> just getting paid for it sounds amazing. Boudicca and chill. Boudicca and chill. I don't know what Boudicca would say about that. Um, yes, I should use this opportunity actually as, an op- uh, as a chance to plug the um, Hunterian Museum at the University of Glasgow because they have a fantastic collection of Roman finds from Lanark at the University of Glasgow in the Hunterian uh, Museum and admission is free um, and including like Roman shoes I'd never yeah. seen Roman shoes before like children's leather shoes and I think there have been some amazing small finds in Lanark especially if you really want to appreciate the uh the soul of the Roman world and go to Glasgow. Oh no! Oh, Are you actually punning? I think that I think it's I think it's a sign that we're we're drawing we're drawing to dinner time, don't you? Yeah. Any further points? This is like in your lectures when you say, "Do you have any questions?" and the students kind of look at you blank. But no, I mean, for my for myself, I think you've you've certainly sated my my curiosity for for hearing about why you chose to do a series and how you got into archaeology in the first place. We've kind of as Matt said, we've kind of come full circle as well. We started out uh, with you as a kind of as a, as a wee geeky bairn wanting to <laughs> wanting to work on brontosauruses and triceratops and all, and all the rest, and how that kind of took you to uh, well being in the scouts and love of outdoors and 
yeah, I mean, entering your subject being a bumpy road, but then also we've talked about how you actually got into doing the podcast in the first place. Yeah. I think it's been a fantastic discussion. It's been so nice actually to not only to listen to the podcast, but actually to talk in more detail to its creator about, about your kind of final your kind of final reflections on this on this last year of your life, which I suspect you're quite looking forward to the end of actually, and you're probably going to sleep for weeks now. Uh, I, I want to say one quick thing. Um, I suppose one thing we didn't touch was Mithras in terms of like why I chose that mm-hmm. but I will say one thing I think I've mentioned this on the podcast previously I have done but I'll, I'll say it again I was told a number of years ago by a prominent professor of Roman archaeology that there was nothing left to say on Mithras and there's not no, it wasn't it wasn't worthwhile pursuing it um, so I think I think the lesson though is don't listen to your lecturers <laughs> <laughs> and that that is happy advice I will happily distribute uh, onward as well Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.